Our uh, uh, Lenten series this year is looking at uh, the life of Jesus through the eyes of Peter, and we started it uh, last week. We'll continue it this week by looking at uh, Matthew chapter uh, 14, and I'm going to be reading from verses 22 to 33. Listen to God's word. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you out on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that when we approach them, uh, we trust that you work powerfully through them. Your spirit works powerfully through them. Uh, to change our hearts. And Father, our hearts are in need of changing. So we pray that you would meet us in your word this morning, that you would refresh our hearts in the truth of the gospel. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, We have all uh, heard fish stories in the past. Uh, uh, Maybe you've told a few fish stories in your day. I'm not a big fisherman, but Uh, I've been known to do that as well. And and a fish story, uh, you've heard of this before, is when you catch a certain size fish, and then in the retelling of the catching of the fish, the fish gets bigger and bigger, right? Uh, Maybe you caught a a six-inch guppy, um, but over years and years of telling the story, the fish becomes a three-foot shark, or, or something uh, very large like that. Uh, you know the, the idea behind that, that every time we tell the story, uh, we exaggerate a little bit more. Well, a few of Jesus' disciples, if you were with us last week, you saw this passage. A few of Jesus' disciples had their own fish story when it came to Jesus. Except this one was so abundant that there is no way that they could possibly exaggerate it beyond reality. If you're with us last week, you saw that uh, Simon Peter, one of Jesus's followers, was also a well-known fisherman, witnessed his first miracle that was performed by the hands of Jesus Christ. And in this miracle, Jesus brought abundance out of an evening of futility. And that abundance was so great that Peter's nets were, were breaking in the process, and even his boats began to sink because the catch was so abundant and they were so full. 
And as a result of that miracle, everyone who saw it, everyone who witnessed it, was absolutely amazed at the sheer power of Jesus Christ. And they didn't quite know what to do with it. They didn't quite know how to think or react to this person named Jesus. But at the end of the narrative, Peter decides to leave the catch. He left his, his greatest catch of his entire life. He leaves the catch on the shore all so that he can follow Jesus. Jesus redefines Peter's life in this story, saying, No longer will you be a fisherman. Instead, you will now catch men with your life. See, in that story, Peter realized something really significant about Jesus. He realized that Jesus was a miracle worker. And because of that, wherever Jesus went, Peter wanted to be right by his side. I don't know if you've heard uh, this story before, but one, one night in the uh, Oval Office, one of our first presidents, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, ordered to have several copies of the new King James Bible brought to him in the Oval Office. And while he was sitting there at the presidential desk, he took a razor and he c- started cutting in these Bibles and, and piecing them together uh, in a way that he judged appropriate. And what he did was he, he cut uh, out um, the teachings, he cut out um, uh, the moral examples in his mind, um, the stories of care and compassion of Jesus Christ, and he pasted them together in what is now called the Jeffersonian Bible. But on the cutting floor, the things that, that didn't make it into his Bible were the passages that were about miracles about Jesus acting in miraculous and extraordinary ways. All of those stories were left on the cutting room floor because Jefferson himself just couldn't accept them. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said that this is the very thing that we cannot do when it comes to Jesus. We have to come to terms with Jesus in all of the ways He presents himself to us with all the ways the Bible says about him, not just the parts that we like or the parts that we can make sense of. Because if you look at the Gospels, one thing that becomes very clear very quickly, and that is that Jesus is a miracle worker. You see, because of his divinity, he had the right and the power to function and operate in extraordinary ways. And our passage this morning confirms that very thing. Three of the different gospel writers tell this uh, specific story about Jesus, and most of them place it right after the narrative in which Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people, though most think it was probably more than 5,000 people. And when our passage opens up, Jesus has dismissed this massive crowd. Some think it could have been upwards to 10,000 people. And it was difficult to dismiss this crowd because they had just received a a miraculous free meal uh, from Jesus Christ. They'd just been riveted by his, his teaching, and they were ready to even crown him as their king in that very moment. But Jesus, recognizing that it wasn't his time, slowly dismissed the crowd, and he sent his disciples off ahead of him so that he could pray. 
What our, what our passage tells us is that while his disciples are in their boats, while they had been dismissed away from Jesus and were rowing, as it were, or sailing across the lake, a great storm came upon them. The wind and the waves came upon their boat, and their hands were pretty full with this storm. And it must have been a storm of significance. Many of them were, were uh, well-trained fishermen, but they were struggling. They were having their own challenges while rowing in this lake. And many people think that they had been rowing for upwards to three miles and becoming increasingly frustrated with the conditions that they were traveling in because the storm was so great. And what our passage tells us is, is during the fourth watch of the night, which was very early in the morning, probably somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, they begin to decipher a figure who is walking on the water. Many of the gospel writers say that Jesus was really just passing by. He wasn't really intending to stop with them. He was just passing by, and the disciples are probably rubbing their eyes, wondering exactly what they are seeing. And as soon as they see this figure, they are immediately cast into fear. All of the, the horror movies they watched as teenagers started coming into their minds as they saw this figure, and they declared amongst themselves, it's a ghost, it's a ghost that we are seeing. They began shouting to one another. And then the passage tells us that Jesus calls to them from the middle of this storm, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then Jesus approaches the boat, he steps in the boat, and as he does, all the wind and all the waves cease because of his very presence. Now when Beck and I, I thought about this story this week, when Beck and I first got married, uh, we um, went on a cruise. We haven't been on a cruise since, uh, but we went on a cruise and we learned uh, on the first day of the cruise that uh, there was a storm, in a, a hurricane that was in the Atlantic Ocean, which we were uh, uh, cruising through. Uh, but it won't really affect um, uh, our vacation and all that sort of stuff. So we didn't really think much about it. But then one night, I don't know why they did this, but one night the, the captain of the cruise ship decided in the middle of the night, probably in the fourth watch, uh, to, to turn the stabilizers off on the boat. And we woke up in the middle of the night convinced we were on the Titanic. We were convinced that we were, we were about to sink, and we even went out in our cabin and found some staff people and said, is this okay? Are we going to die? Is it everything going to be? And they, they assured us that it was fine and that the captain had turned off the stabilizers. Uh, but one of the things that we noticed is that for days after, when we looked out on the ocean, even though that storm had been 100 miles away, for days after, the consequences of that storm were all around us, and that ship was tossed about for days. And what's remarkable about that, 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 what made me think about that today, is that the gospel writers are very clear that the minute that Jesus stepped in that boat, immediately, not days, not hours, immediately, the wind and the waves stopped. And that was because they were under his authority. Everybody else in the boat, they were amazed. They immediately begin to worship Jesus Christ, this man who was in the boat with them, and they begin to conclude to one another that truly this man, truly you are the Son of God. Only God himself could provide a miraculous catch. 
Only God himself could multiply food to feed 5,000 people. Only God himself could defy gravity and walk on water as if it were solid. Only God himself could command the wind and the waves. See, they realized that Jesus wasn't some prophet who was simply given the power of God to perform miracles. Jesus was himself the Son of God. And if the Son of God is in your boat, there is no need to fear. Instead, there is every reason to worship. You see, these miracles, they were authenticating signs. Jesus' teaching meant something because he was teaching with the very authority of God. Only God could do the things that Jesus did. And so these miracles, these extraordinary acts, authenticated his teaching as being teaching from God himself. See, it's been very common ever since Thomas Jefferson to want to celebrate the teachings of Jesus, to celebrate the moral example of Jesus, but to accept the miraculous. Well, that just might be too much for all of us. And that's why C.S. Lewis reminds us that Jesus actually never leaves that option open to us. The pick-and-choose option is one that really isn't available to us when it comes to Jesus Christ. Lewis said, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And that is exactly what the disciples did that day. You see, this curtain of revelation was being pulled back. Jesus' identity was slowly being revealed for everyone to see, and the people were falling at his feet and worshiping him as God. What's unique is, is that within this broader story, this broader miracle of Jesus, comes, comes a smaller story really about Peter and about his faith. And it teaches us something really quickly about the whole nature of faith. It shows us the action of faith, it shows us the object of faith, and then finally, the gracious nature of faith. So first, we see the action of faith in, in verses 28 and 29. It says this, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now this is where Peter's impetuous spirit is really on display for all of us to see. Because Peter, of all the disciples, raises his hand and says, well, I want to do that. I want to step out of this boat. I want to walk on the water. I want to do what Jesus can do. So Christ honors that and invites him out on the water, and Peter begins to walk on the water. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not like Peter. I would have been the disciple that's in the boat, uh, shivering in fear and wrapping myself in six different life vests for fear that my life would be compromised, but not Peter. And in so doing, what he demonstrates for us is the boldness or the action that is required from us when it comes to faith. You see, many of us want to keep our faith at, uh, at the very intellectual or at least the very safe level. 
We want to, to believe the right things about God. We want to be able to study and understand the ins and outs of the gospel. We want to study the Bible to grow in our knowledge. And we want to keep things very manageable and very safe. And all of those things can be very good things. And it's probably the very thing that the rest of the disciples were doing. Jesus, can't we just have a nice parable? Why do we have to witness all this stuff that fills us with fear? But not Peter, because he demonstrates for us that faith, when it is genuine, always involves action. You see, it isn't enough to just intellectually assent to the faith, because there must come a point where one, in action, transfers their trust from themselves, off of themselves, to Jesus Christ. And this is what Peter demonstrates for us. His whole life he'd been taught, just like you and I, that you can't walk on water. That's not scientifically possible. But Jesus had changed his life. Jesus, through faith, had opened up to him possibilities that previously were closed to his reason and his intellect. You see, friends, I think many of us, including myself, like to settle for a very shallow and safe faith. Our faith often has been reduced to a low-risk, low-reward, vanilla sort of existence. We don't want to risk much, and because we don't want to risk much, then we don't often experience the power of God much. But not Peter, because Peter demonstrates for us that faith means action. The second thing we see, really, is the object of Peter's faith and and the importance of the object of our faith. Verse 30, And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, speaking of Peter, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. One of the things I appreciate about this is that Peter's faith is imperfect. It is by no means perfect or shiny or ideal for us. And in our passage, what he does is he takes his eyes off Jesus just for a split second, and when he does, he immediately begins to sink. And what it reminds me and all of us is that even strong faith can be very easy to lose. You see, the first steps of faith get Peter out of the boat. The next two steps take him toward Jesus, but by the third step, his faith is all but gone. See, Peter places his eyes on his circumstances, and immediately his fears drive out his faith. In that moment, the wind and the waves were bigger to him than the Savior that he had had his eyes upon. His circumstances instead had had filled his perspective rather than the Savior who was standing before him. Friends, I can't tell you how quickly fear appears in the absence of faith. The circumstances of our lives can so quickly chase faith away in our hearts if we allow it to do so. Because faith can be very easy to lose. I think what this also helps us to see is that what we place our faith in matters. 
Some believe that, that, that bare faith, or as long as I have faith in something, that is good enough. But what, what Peter shows us is that the object that we put our faith in really matters, or the strength of the object that we put our faith in matters as well. You see, most people functionally put their faith in themselves. We functionally live day in and day out as if we are our own Savior. We trust in our own smarts and our intellect to get through life. Maybe we place our faith in our own perceived righteousness or goodness, or we place our faith in some sort of perceived spiritual resume. But we all know that when the storms of God's judgment come, or the storms of the circumstances of our life begin to bear upon us, then each one of us are gripped by fear. You see, Peter begins to sink, and he cries out to God, save me. And when he does, God comes to the rescue. So really, finally, the last thing we see is the gracious nature of faith. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, some people are under the impression that we must have perfect faith in order to be saved by God. But Peter's faith here is clearly far from being perfect. See, as, as Peter is sinking, his, the weakness of his faith is on display for everyone to see. His boldness has now turned into embarrassment, and the waves are collapsing on him just as much as his doubts are collapsing upon him. And so he prays the prayer that is the essence of what faith truly is. Lord, save me. Lord, save me from my circumstances. Save me from my doubts. Save me from my weak and feeble faith. Save me from the ways I put my faith in all of the wrong things. And in that moment, the gracious hand of God reaches out and restores Peter. And friends, the same is true for you and I. God reaches out in those moments and restores us and saves our soul. See, what the gospel tells us is that the moment of salvation, we come to our end, just like Peter did in that moment. We finally realize that we are sinking under the weight of God's judgment, under the weight of sin and of death. And so we cry out to God, and when we do, the gracious hand of God reaches out and breathes new life into our soul. But friends, this isn't just the beginning of faith. This is the path of faith from start to finish. Each day we wake up and remember that the only path to life is through the gracious hand of God that sustains us. Each day we wake up, we despair of our own goodness and our own abilities. Each day we come to terms with the weakness and the flabbiness of our own faith. And each day we cling anew and afresh in the gospel to the hand of Jesus who reaches into our hearts and into our lives. We cling to Jesus, the only source of life. You see, friends, faith calls us to step out. 
Faith calls us to fix our eyes not on our circumstances or even our doubts or even our insecurities. Faith instead clings to the Savior who didn't just reach out his hand to save us, but in grace offered us his very own life as a sacrifice for sin. You see, faith is being gripped by the miracle of God's grace. The story is told about uh, a young man who once came to an old preacher, and uh, he asked this old preacher a really important question. He said, does faith just come harder to some people than others? Is faith just easier for some than it is for other people? And the old preacher looked at him, and he said this. He said, remember Peter, who on one occasion stepped out of the boat and began walking on the water towards Jesus, only to become fearful and to sink. The old preacher said, we rightly criticize him for not having more faith, but unlike others, at least he got out of the boat. Peter certainly wasn't perfect, but at that moment he found it easier than his fellow disciples to put his faith into action. And the preacher finished with this, we should learn from his example. That old preacher was Billy Graham. Let's pray.